If you would, uh, please turn with me in your Bibles to, uh, to John uh, chapter 20. This morning we'll be in John chapter 20, verses 11 through 18, as uh, we continue on in the Gospel of John this morning. In John 20, beginning in verse 11. John writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And he says this. But Mary was standing outside the tomb weeping. And so, as she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white, sitting one at the head and one at the feet, where the body of Jesus had been lying. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. When she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, and did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father, and my God and your God. When Mary Magdalene came, announcing to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. Now as we uh, consider these verses this morning, we'll do so under uh, three main points. First, Jesus revealed himself to Mary. Jesus revealed himself to Mary. Mary was a messenger to the apostles. Mary was a messenger to the apostles. And thirdly, Jesus regards his disciples as his brothers. Jesus regards his disciples as his brothers. So we have Jesus revealed himself to Mary. Mary was a messenger to the apostles. And Jesus regards his disciples as his brothers. Now, we, we left off last week with the discovery of the empty tomb by Mary Magdalene and Peter and John. We saw how even though John had not yet seen the risen Christ, nevertheless, he believed that Jesus was risen from the dead. He believed on the basis of the, the empty tomb and the, the grave clothes which he saw there. And we saw how at the end of that, Peter and John had departed, went to the places where they were staying. And meanwhile, our text this morning finds Mary Magdalene standing outside the tomb and weeping. And in the midst of her weeping, she followed in the steps of the apostles by looking into the empty tomb. And in looking into the empty tomb, she saw there two angels. And they asked her the question, woman, why are you weeping? And she answers, because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Now, Mary Magdalene's tears here manifest what was in her heart. And what was in her heart was a false fear. She was upset that the body of Jesus was not in the tomb. That which should have caused her great joy, that the body of Jesus was not in the tomb, was the very thing that in this case, brought tears to her eyes. Now, obviously, there's confusion going on here. In her mind, 
the situation of things was this. Either Jesus' body would be in the grave, as she thought it should be, and if it were, she could have executed her design in going to the tomb that morning. She could have anointed him with spices, lovingly paid her last respects to her Lord. But on the other hand, she thought, if Jesus' body was not in the grave, then something, something terrible must be afoot and happening here. Either tomb robbers had broken in to steal something and move the body, which would be terrible, or perhaps even some person with no nefarious motives at all had showed up and had moved the body of Jesus to some undisclosed location. And as it stood, she felt that her devotion to Jesus was hindered in this, that she could not pay her last respects to the body of Jesus by anointing him with spices, and so she wept. Richard Sibbs noted that if it had been, as she supposed, there had been cause enough of her weeping, if her Lord had been taken away. For when the Lord is taken away, what remains that is comfortable? And if the Lord be not taken away, it matters not what is taken away. For he is all in all. Or, as someone else expressed it, she weeps because she finds the grave empty, which God forbid she should have found full. But then Christ must have been dead still, and there would be no resurrection. And so she's weeping and grieved here over the very thing that should have brought her joy. Now, I think we should understand here that her heart was right, that she loved Jesus, and she wanted to do right by Jesus. But her head was wrong. She didn't understand yet God's great and wonderful plan of raising Christ from the dead, of him ascending to the right hand of the Father, and so on. And so, in her ignorance of Christ's plan and purposes, she was sad. And it's worth our considering how often do you and I resemble Mary Magdalene in this. We look out into the world and we see hardships and difficulties and all kinds of things and we're upset by them. Sometimes we actually physically weep, sometimes just the inward emotional distress that could result in weeping. We don't understand what the Lord's plans are. As John Flavel put it in his work, The Mystery of Providence, he said, We often prejudge the works of providence and unjustly censure its design. And in many of our troubles we say, All these things are against us. But indeed, providence neither does nor can do anything that is really against the true interest and good of the saints. God's works are all for our good. And so, beloved, let us learn here from the experience of Mary Magdalene the truth of what David said in Psalm 25.10 when he said, All the paths of the Lord are loving kindness and truth to those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. All of the paths of the Lord are loving kindness and truth to those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. God is good to his people. In all things, God is is working for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. And so, beloved, remember that when hard times come. And hard times do come upon us. And so let's remember that though we may be like Mary and that we don't understand the Lord's designs in these things, nevertheless, let us trust him, that his ways are loving kindness and truth toward us. Though we may not see it 
in the moment, the things which cause us grief are actually working for our good, even as was the case with Mary Magdalene here. And though that may not take all of the tears out of our eyes in the moment, let it at least be a comfort to our hearts. After Mary had told the angels why she was weeping, she turns around and unknowingly sees Jesus himself. And he asked her the same thing that the angels had asked. Woman, why are you weeping? To which he added the second question, whom are you seeking? But Mary didn't recognize him. She thought he was somebody else. Many people could not recognize Jesus that first resurrection morning. You remember those, those two disciples on the road to Emmaus. They too were kept from recognizing who Jesus actually was. And so she thinks that Jesus is the gardener, this person who would attend to this garden where the tomb was. And she says, hey, if you've moved him, tell me where he is. I'll carry his body back here myself. If you just tell me where he is. But Jesus, loving as he is, would not keep her in suspense any longer. And all it took was the utterance by him of her name, Mary. She knew that it was Jesus. So she called out to him, Rabboni. It's interesting that when Joseph of old was in the presence of his brothers, we're told in Genesis that he could not control himself any longer and said to his brothers, I am Joseph. He revealed himself to his brothers. Now, I will not begin to suggest here that our Lord could not control himself, as was the case with Joseph. But nevertheless, is there not at least some similarity here between these two events, that Joseph loved his brothers and longed to be reconciled to them and wanted to make his face known to them. And so it is here with Jesus and Mary. Jesus loved Mary. Jesus wanted her to know the truth, that his body was not stolen, that he was risen from the dead. And in her joy, Mary clung to Jesus so much so that Jesus commanded her to stop, right? We see that there in verse 17 where he says, Stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. I think this command should not be understood as if there was something inherently amiss with touching the resurrection body of Jesus before he ascended to the Father. As we'll see, uh, Lord willing, later on here in John chapter 20, there is an explicit command that Jesus gives for Thomas to touch his body, right? And so there's nothing uh, inherently wrong with touching the resurrection body of Jesus, but I think the idea here is that Mary had this inordinate desire uh, to touch him and to be physically present with him. And so I think that her affections were, were too physical, so to speak. One preacher expressed it this way when he said, this embracing came out of a well-meant but yet human affection. She thought it the best evidence of her love and joy to kiss those feet. Christ rejects this testimony of her love and directs her to another more acceptable service. Our love to Christ is best shown, not in human, passionate affections to his bodily presence, but in performance of those religious services which he requires of us. And so Jesus bids her to stop and then directs her to serve, namely to serve by carrying a message. And isn't that quite similar in a way to the case of the Gerasene demoniac in Mark chapter 5, you remember how it was, how Jesus had cast the legions of demons out of that man. And then uh, when that man sat down with Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, he wanted to, to go along with Jesus. He wanted to be right there with him. But Jesus said no. 
He wouldn't let him. Jesus instead had other work for him to do. He said to him, go home to your people and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy on you. And it's, it's the same here with, with Mary Magdalene. Mary seems to have wanted to be right there physically with Jesus. But Jesus directs her to another avenue of service. He says, go to my brethren and say to them, I send to my father and your father and my God and your God. And we should, should notice here also how Jesus implies that the accomplishment of his resurrection is, in a sense, incomplete without his ascension to the right hand of the Father in heaven. Now, historically, theologians have spoken of the, the twofold state of Christ, the state of his, his emptying on the one hand and the state of his exaltation on the other. The state of Christ's emptying begins with the incarnation as the Word became flesh, as the, the majesty of the Godhead of the Son of God was concealed in his human nature. The state of his emptying culminated in his crucifixion, death, and burial, and him giving up his spirit. The state of Christ's exaltation begins with his resurrection and continues on with his ascension and culminates in him being seated at the right hand of God. To use the language of Ephesians 1, 21 and 22, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come, with all things being in subjection to him. This is, this is Christ's exaltation. And so the point is that Christ's resurrection, vital and essential as it is to our salvation, he's raised for our justification, but nevertheless his work is incomplete until he entered into heaven itself to appear in the presence of God for us as our advocate and our mediator and our high priest. And I would just add, uh, stay tuned uh, for tonight uh, because, Lord willing, we'll be looking at Leviticus 16, the Day of Atonement tonight, and we, we see some of these things foreshadowed in the Day of Atonement in Leviticus chapter 16. And so, though Christ had not yet ascended to the Father and would not ascend for another 40 days after the day of his resurrection, yet... In the message that he wanted conveyed to his disciples, he says, I ascend to my father and your father. His ascension was essential. His ascension was certain. And Christ was intent upon his ascension. Just as he had earlier been intent upon going up to Jerusalem to die for our sins, so he is here intent upon carrying his work to its completion, to ascending to the Father, taking his seat at the Father's right hand there to intercede for us. While Mary and the disciples are still trying to come to grips with the truth of the resurrection, Jesus lays out another article of faith, another doctrine for them to receive, namely that of the ascension. And so, Christian friends, this is all good news for us. The fact of the empty tomb means that the right hand of God the Father is not vacant. There's a high priest named Jesus Christ who is there for us. We have a priest who is the Son of God and the Son of Man, one to whom we may draw near with confidence and receive mercy, and find grace to help in our time of need. The Doctrine of the ascension means that we can go to Christ with confidence that Christ is 
our advocate at the Father's right hand. And this brings us then to our second point, which is Mary was a messenger to the apostles. Now, we need to uh, think here about the commission that Jesus gave to Mary Magdalene. We'll consider the, the specifics of the, commi- the commission that he gave to her here in a few moments, but first let's, let's think about it this broadly. Jesus commissioned her to go to his brethren, to proclaim that he was risen, that she had seen him alive, risen from the dead, and that he would soon be ascending to the Father. And as we find in verse 18, Mary was obedient. Mary Magdalene came announcing to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. Now, as we observe this, we need to do two things. One is we need to give honor where honor is due. And at the same time, we need to avoid any misconception or misconstrual of what is happening here so as to avoid drawing any false conclusions or false implications from the history that is given here. And so to give honor where honor is due, we need to observe the great grace with which our Lord honored Mary Magdalene, the grace to be the first to proclaim having seen him alive after his resurrection. In this, we see the the dignity and the humanity with which Christ treated this particular woman. Now, in our day, it is uh, culturally acceptable and politically correct to say, I believe the woman. Such a sentiment, however, would not have held such clout in first century Palestine. Jewish men would sometimes thank God in prayer that they had not been made uh, by God to be heathens, slaves, or women. In the Babylonian Talmud, it was said, Happy is he whose children are male, but alas, for him whose children are female. And likewise, it was said, Sooner let the words of the law be burned than delivered to women. Jewish historian Josephus bears witness to the ancient Jewish legal practice of not allowing women to give testimony in court cases, saying the testimony of women must not be accepted because of the levity and presumption of their sex. That's a far cry from saying, I believe the woman. Now we should note here on the, that contrary to the culture of his times, our Lord Jesus placed a high honor upon Mary. He says, go to my brethren and say to them, she was sent to the apostles. Indeed, some of the, some of the older theologians like the Lutheran reformer Johannes Brins and the Puritan Richard Sibbs went so far as to call her an apostle to the apostles. Brins pointed out that though sin had come into the world by a woman, yet in the mercy of God, Christ entered the world by being born of a woman and that Christ's first appearance after the resurrection was to a woman and a woman was the first to carry the news of the resurrection. This is a great honor and a wonderful thing. It is a reminder of the fact that we find in 1 Corinthians 1, 27 to 29, that God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong and the base things of the world and the despised. God has chosen the things that are not so that he may nullify the things that are so that no man may boast before God. And I would also add, this is also a very strong argument for the truthfulness of the account. And the reason is simple, that if John or the other early Christians were trying to make up a story about Jesus rising from the dead, a story that they wanted other people to believe, or even just a story that wouldn't make them appear ridiculous, this is not the kind of story they would have made up. Fact is often more strange than fiction. And the reason why John tells the story of the resurrection in the way that he does is because that's the way that it happened. 
And so we should give honor where honor is due and recognize the honor which Christ here bestowed upon Mary. But at the same time, given the days in which we live, we need to be aware of drawing any false conclusions or false inferences from this account. And so, uh, for instance, there was a uh, podcast that came out uh, last year that I listened to, and it was dealing with the very uncontroversial topic of women preachers. And in the course of the podcast, one of the uh, hosts of this podcast latched onto the fact that women were the first witnesses of the resurrection. He was dealing specifically with, uh, with Matthew chapter 28, but I think that's, that's beside the point. And so this man said, when a woman preaches, all she's doing is following the very first preachers of the gospel. And he drew no distinction at all between what he did Sunday morning as a pastor preaching the gospel and what the women did on the first Easter Sunday. In other words, the implication he seemed to be drawing was, yeah, women can preach and ought not to be hindered from preaching because of what happened here the first Easter Sunday morning. And if that bothers you, too bad. It's in the Bible. Now, what should we make of this line of reasoning? Is this text in John chapter 20 concerning Jesus' commission to Mary Magdalene, a stinging rebuke to those churches, like ours, who do not admit women into the eldership of the church, which is to say the position of ruling and teaching the church as a whole. Obviously, women teach children, women teach other women, but we don't allow women to preach or teach or exercise authority over the gathered church. Does John 20 rebuke us for that belief and practice. And I don't think so. And while on the one hand, again, we should give honor where honor is due, recognize the honor with which Christ graced Mary Magdalene, on the other hand, we should recognize that this is a descriptive text describing a specific event as it happened, not a prescriptive text prescribing the order and government that Christ has established in his church. And those texts which actually are prescriptive in this regard, are, are clear enough. And so Paul says in 1 Timothy 2.12, But I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. And then just a few verses after that, 1 Timothy 3, he gives the requirements for elders. We find the same in uh, the requirements for, for overseers, elders, in Titus chapter 1. And they both list, 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1, indicate specifically that the overseer is to be a husband of, of one wife. It says nothing about an overseer being the wife of one husband. And I realize that there are voices that say we can't use some passages to silence other passages because they preserve a traditional understanding which we would rather not disturb. To that I would say, fair enough. And at the same time I would equally add that we cannot use some passages to silence other passages because on the surface and in the hands of certain interpreters, they would appear to advocate a progressive understanding that we would rather adopt. We have to let Scripture speak and interpret it appropriately. We have to let the clearer passages explain the passages which are less clear. And so if I can borrow the language of the 1689 Baptist Confession, the infallible rule of interpretation of Scripture is the Scripture itself. 
And therefore, when there is a question about the true and full sense of any scripture, which is not manifold but one, it must be searched by other places that speak more clearly. So in other words, we allow that which is clear to be determinative for our hermeneutic as we seek to interpret scripture. That being the case, what do we do with this descriptive text before us in which Mary serves, as it were, as an apostle to the apostles at the express command of Jesus? Well, I would tend to agree with Calvin when he said that this occurrence was extraordinary. We might almost say accidental. It's wrong to frame a law out of this injunction of Christ. Let us be satisfied with knowing that Christ displayed in them the boundless treasures of his grace when he once appointed them to be the teachers of the apostles, yet did not intend that what was done by a singular privilege should be viewed as an example. That is to say, an example in the sense of permitting women to teach and exercise authority over men in the life of the church. And I think that is pretty much what we have to say based on the inspired instructions of Paul concerning church order in 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1, 1 Corinthians 14, that this was an extraordinary uh, occasion in which Christ, for his own wise reasons, chose to grace Mary Magdalene with his first appearance after his resurrection and to give her this commission to carry a message to the apostles. The precedent here is not one for women pastors or for women preaching when the church is gathered, but it is certainly and most certainly a precedent for women to be witnesses and for women to do good in those roles which God has allotted to them. Women can and should bear witness to the fact that Jesus is the Son of God, that he died for sinners and was raised on the third day. How many Christians, both women and men, owe their conversion, humanly speaking, to the testimony of a woman who bore witness to them? I don't know that I could say specifically that I owe my conversion to the testimony of women more than the testimony of men, but I can certainly point to godly Christian women who have been influential and helpful to me in my spiritual growth. Praise God for the faithfulness of such women. Such who do those things are the worthy successors of Mary Magdalene. I was reading recently a, uh, in a pastoral uh, biography from a pastor who lived uh, a couple of hundred years ago, and he described how at the age of two he was sent to live with two of his father's widowed sisters. So he's living with two of his widowed aunts. And he talked about how one of them taught him to read, and he still said that, that she early on instilled in him the, the principles of Christianity. He talked about how they would, would read the chapters of the Bible for the day and the Psalms for the day as they were at the breakfast table and how he was catechized on Sundays and how Sundays he remembered as a day of joy, even as, as just a young boy. Those kind of women who do those things, who bear witness in their families, are worthy successors of Mary Magdalene. Likewise, John Bunyan, in his autobiography, Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners, described how when he was not yet converted, he happened upon three or four women who were sitting in the the doorway of one of their homes, and he said their talk was about a new birth and the work of God on their hearts. Also how they were convinced of their miserable state by nature. They talked how God had visited their souls with his love in the Lord Jesus and with what words and promises they had been refreshed, comforted, and supported against the temptations of the devil. Bunyan said that they spoke with such pleasantness of scripture language that it appeared to him as if he had found a new world, as if they were the people that dwelt alone and were not to be reckoned amongst their neighbors. And 
Even though Bunyan's conversion didn't seem to follow immediately after hearing their testimony, yet nevertheless, these women were influential in bringing Bunyan to saving faith in Christ. And just as uh, a multitude have been influenced through Bunyan's preaching and teaching, we can see the trickle-down effects of the good that these women did. Same here with, uh, with Mary Magdalene, inasmuch as all Christians benefit from the preaching and teaching of the apostles, as it is recorded here in Scripture, we all benefit from the trickle-down effect of the testimony that Mary Magdalene bore. And this is a great and wonderful thing. And it is only right to recognize and celebrate this and to commend Mary Magdalene as an example to women. And we can do this without overturning or explaining away any text in the New Testament epistles that gives instructions about pastors preaching and teaching in the church. We can do this, and we must do this. And uh, while I'm here, let me add just, just two, more, two more additional things. One is that we actually speak to this issue in our confession of faith, albeit uh, referentially, when we affirm that the qualifications, claims, and duties of pastors are defined in the epistles of Timothy and Titus. If you looked at First Timothy and Titus, you find there that it is men who are to be pastors and preachers and teachers in the church. The second thing that I would point out is that the hermeneutics that would allow one to take Mary Magdalene's example and infer from that that, therefore, women ought to preach and teach and be pastors in the church, that same kind of hermeneutic will land you in deeper and darker places if you want to follow that hermeneutic in keeping with the spirit of the age. Now, not all who embrace uh, women as pastors go on to those deeper and darker things, but the, the same hermeneutic will, that will get you to one, if followed in other regards, will get you to the other two. Take that as a, a pastoral word of caution in that regard. Now, Moving on from there, we, we come to our third point, which is that Jesus regards his disciples as his brothers. Now, who were the recipients of this message when Jesus said to Mary, go to my brethren? Who is who's he talking about here? Well, based on Mary's actions as recorded in verse 18, it becomes clear that he's speaking about his disciples. He calls them brethren, his brothers. And thus it was prophesied of Christ in Psalm 22, 22, I will tell of your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. And in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, we find the writer to the Hebrews applying Psalm 22, 22 to Christ. For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. And then he goes on to quote Psalm 22, 22. Now, this ought to be encouraging if we stop to think about it. Jesus calls the disciples his brethren. And, Hebrews tells us, he is not ashamed to do so. They are from one Father. And so, notice here how he says in verse 17, I ascend to my Father and your Father. Christ and his people share the same Father. Now, be it. Not in the same exact way do they share the same father, but they do share the same father. And Jesus, after his resurrection, calls these men his brothers. These very disciples who had deserted him, or who, in the case of Peter, had blatantly denied them. 
He calls them brothers. And the same applies for all who do the will of God, for you and me. Jesus says, Matthew 12, 48 and following, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? Behold, my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of my Father in heaven, he is my brother and sister and mother. Christ is the brother of his people, in one sense because he is a partaker of our humanity. This is, this is the glory of the incarnation, isn't it? Though it is the first step in the emptying of Christ, the first step in his humiliation, yet this is for our salvation, this is for our benefit. And so we find in Hebrews two sixteen and 17, For assuredly he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendant of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of of the people. And so the point is the Son of God became a man, a true man, a human brother to us, a descendant of David, the seed of the woman, so that he might become a faithful and merciful high priest for us to make propitiation. And if you stop and think about it, this is this is really mind boggling. Inasmuch as all humanity is related through Adam and Noah, Jesus Christ is blood kin to you and me. It's kind of mind-boggling if you stop and think about it. Jesus becomes a true man so that he can be a faithful high priest and make propitiation for us. In connection with this, Paul says in 1 Timothy 2.5 that there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Jesus is our brother according to the flesh. And likewise, Jesus is the brother of his people from a spiritual point of view. And so we find... In Romans 8.29, that those whom God the Father foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. Our Lord Jesus is the eternal Son of God, the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And yet, we find John chapter 1, that as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. Even to those who believed in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Jesus called his disciples brethren, despite their weakness, despite their sin. He wasn't ashamed to call them brethren, and he does the same for us. And notice how he speaks. He says, I ascend to my Father and your Father, and my God and your God. God the Father is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ with respect to his divine nature, with respect to his eternal generation as the Son, in which the Father communicated his whole essence to the person of the Son begotten from eternity. God the Father is the God of our Lord Jesus Christ with respect to his humanity. When the Son of God humbled himself by becoming a man and taking upon him the form of a servant, Jesus became obedient, we're told in Philippians 2, obedient to death. Obedient to who? Obedient to God the Father, who is the God of our Lord Jesus Christ with respect to his humanity. And so Christ comforts the disciples that his Father and his God to whom he is going is also their God and also their Father. I ascend to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. He is our Father because He has lovingly adopted us 
And he is our God because we have been reconciled to him by the death of his son. This should be a comfort to those who are in Christ, to those who have trusted Christ, but it should also be a terror to those who are outside of Christ because those outside of Christ are not adopted into the family of God, at least not yet. And far from having the true God as their God, he is not their God. They are at war with him. And so, friends, if that describes any of you today, still at war with God, don't have God as your father by coming in faith to Jesus Christ and believing the gospel, if that describes any of you here, today's the day. Throw the weapons down. Stop fighting against God. Believe this testimony of the woman, Mary Magdalene, who testified that Jesus was raised from the dead, who testified to the disciples that Jesus was going on ahead, that he was going to ascend to the Father. Believe this good news here, that Jesus is a brother to his people, that he reconciles them to his God and Father by his work on the cross, his resurrection and ascension. And so, believe the gospel. Turn from your sins. And if you have more questions about what this means, you can talk to me after the service. You can talk to another Christian whom you know. We'd love to tell you more about what it means to turn away from your sins and to believe in Jesus. Now, one minister from olden times was preaching uh, on verse 17 of this chapter, and he said, Christ was upon his ascent even before he ascended. So should we do, to die daily, to ascend daily. Seek those things which are above, where Christ sits at the right hand of God. Let your conversation still be in heaven beforehand. He that is going to move to another house will often go there and fit it and prepare it. In other words, if if we're in Christ, we're going to be with him. Let's live like we're in heaven even before we get there. Now, back when Ruby and I bought our home, in 2018, we had about a week between the date upon which we closed and the day upon which uh, was going to be our main moving day. And in that week, we went there during, during the day. We, we did some cleaning, we did some preparation and some things like that. We were getting ready for the move before we actually made the move, if that makes sense. And so it is to be here with us. Christ was intent upon his ascension before he ascended. He said it in the present tense, even though it was in the future. He said, I ascend, but it was going to be 40 days from then. And as it is, all who believe in him have their lives hidden with Christ in God. And as such, we should live heavenly lives before we're in heaven, because that's where we're going, and that's where our true home is. And this is what Paul is getting at in Colossians 3. Verses 1 and following, where he says, Therefore, if you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on the things that are of earth, for you have died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Our lives are hidden there. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Christian friends, this is where our citizenship is. This is where we are going. And so by the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit, let's live like Christ's heavenly people for his glory, who died, rose again, and ascended for us. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the good news of the empty tomb, that Christ is risen from the dead. We thank you for the good news of the ascension, that Christ has ascended to your right hand 
into the true holy place, that he has appeared there and remains there for us and for our benefit. We give praise and thanks to you, O Father, for Christ. We ask your blessing now as we prepare to come to the Lord's table. We pray, Lord, that you would strengthen our faith, that you would build us up, that we would be encouraged and blessed as we come. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.